Welcome today to uh, Apollo 11 landing anniversary, 50 years, I believe. More importantly, welcome to the National Ice Cream Day. <laughs> not really, not really, not really. Some interesting days that we have. Um, but we also have this opportunity today as well, too, to be encouraged by God's Word, to be challenged by God's Word as well. And I trust uh, we'll respond uh, to, to what he has for us today in obedience. If you haven't turned there yet, turn to Matthew chapter 7. I'm going to read from verse 12 on through verse 29. It's going to be a little long reading there, but uh, just imagine Jesus preaching to you right now because this is part of the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew chapter 7, starting with verse 12. So in everything... Do to others what you would have them do to you, for this sums up the law and the prophets. Enter through the narrow gate, for wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction, and many enter through it. But small is the gate and narrow the road that leads to life, and only a few find it. Watch out for false prophets. They come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ferocious wolves. By their fruit you will recognize them. Do people pick grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Likewise, every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, and a bad tree cannot bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, by their fruit, you will recognize them. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and in your name perform many miracles? Then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house. Yet it did not fall because it had its foundation on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like a foolish man who built his house on sand. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell with a great crash. When Jesus had finished saying these things, the crowds were amazed at his teaching, because he taught as one who had authority and not as their teachers of the law. We'll stop there reading. This great sermon of Jesus is part of the Sermon on the Mount, and Jesus' primary target has been to expose what could be called veneer religion. Veneer religion. You're probably more familiar with veneers as it relates maybe to dentistry. Uh, a layer of material placed over a tooth to improve the appearance, uh, make your smile look better, as well as to protect the tooth surface from damage. Or maybe you're familiar with veneer as far as in the area of wood. Thin slices of wood, usually thinner than three millimeters, that typically are glued onto core panels to produce doors, cabinet tops and panels, and, and parquet floors and parts of furniture. But what is mentioned here is a veneer religion. It's a kind of spirituality that looks righteous on the outside, but really is not. It is culturally religious belief based upon what you know 
what family you are born into, what spiritual things that you do, and what things you do not do rather than a relationship with God based upon a change of heart, a personal brokenness, and a a lifetime of holiness. Veneer religion often sounds like this. I grew up in a Christian home, went to Sunday school all my life. Or, I've always been a Christian. Or, I know that you're not supposed to do those things, but it's not that big a sin. Or, I know I'm saved, I'm just backslidden. Those things speak of a veneer religion. Veneer religion is knowing the facts about who Jesus is, being able to recite certain doctrinal truths, and even being involved in ministry to others, while at the same time not being a genuine believer. The scary reality is this. Every church is filled with self-deceived people who may not have experienced true life change by Jesus yet. They have, as 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 5 says, an appearance of godliness, but deny its power. It is a sobering reality that we must carefully consider. Not, not everyone who claims to be a believer really is a believer. Richard Owen, Robert, uh, Richard Owen Robert, he was a prominent living authority on revival. He was once asked what would happen if revival broke out in the United States. And he instinctively replied, well, millions of church people would be saved. <laughs> so today's goal is to, is to ask you, maybe even plead with you and beg you to consider if you are genuinely converted. Romans 8, verse 16 says, The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. And today, I simply want you to take a careful look at your soul and ask yourself, am I real? Am I real in my relationship with with God? The Sermon on the Mount comes down to this question, basically. Are you real? Do you know him as king? Or do you know him as a religious icon? My primary concern is not about losing salvation here. My burden is whether or not you live for Jesus like you should. And that's what our goal should be, living for Jesus. Not the fear of, of what we might lose. But what is it that we're, ga- we're gaining? Jesus ends this great sermon with a call to choose. He lays out for his listeners two gates, two ways, two groups, two kinds of trees, two kinds of fruit, two kinds of builders, two foundations, and two houses. He ends this sermon with a crystal clear call to make a choice or to think carefully about the choice that you've already made. So Jesus is about to call for a decision. Just before he draws a very clear line in the sand, he summarizes the overriding ethic of the Sermon on the Mount in verse 12. We started our reading there. It's often called the golden rule, and you probably heard it that way. Verse 12, so in everything due to others, what you have them do to you, for this sums up the law and the prophets. In Matthew chapter 5, verse 20, Jesus made a startling statement. He said this, he said, Unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. Now his warning 
was meant to shock. There was no one more righteous from a human perspective than the religious leaders. And if the religious leaders weren't living right, then who is? Jesus wants a genuine righteousness. And the problem with the religious leaders was that their religion didn't come from a work of God in their heart. They thought that they kept the law, but they were actually breaking it. And that is why Jesus gives this summary. It is a reminder about what the heart of true religion is, a changed heart leading to a changed life. Real religion and a summary of the law and prophets are to treat others the way that you want to be treated. Loving one's neighbor is the fulfillment of this law, as Galatians chapter 5, verse 14 talks about. The conclusion then should be obvious. If you claim to be religious, but you are not filled with love for others, then you are not really religious. If you claim to be a follower of Jesus, but you do not do what he says, you are not really a disciple of his. You can claim to believe certain truths, but if your actions, your attitudes, your choices, and the fruit of your life don't line up, then there's a problem going on. Actions reveal who you really are. And Jesus draws all of this to a close with three compelling warnings, and that's where I want to camp out here today looking at these three warnings. So what follows in verses 13 through 27 are three warnings that contain 14 contrasts. If you look all through them, I'm not going to list them all, but there are 14 contrasts here that he brings forth. And these warnings relate to three questions, three questions that I, I trust that the Holy Spirit will be able to uh, run through your heart and ask you, is this true? Is this happening? Who are you? And one of the questions is, what path are you on? What path are you on? A second question is, who are you really? Who are you really? And a third question is, what are you going to do? What are you going to do about it? We know all these things about God's Word, but what are we going to do about it? Each of these is designed to press deeper and deeper into the reality of the right response to this sermon. So the first warning comes in the form of a gate and asks the question, what path are you on? According to verse 13, there are two gates and two paths, and they are described as wide and narrow. The wide gate has three characteristics. It is easy, it leads to destruction, and there are many who enter by it. The image is rather scary in that this path is far more popular and it seems to be the right path because it is filled with such uh, momentary ease and satisfaction. But there's a huge problem lurking at the end of the road. It leads to destruction. So Jesus aims to paint a tragic picture of a huge number of people following the crowd, doing what everyone else is doing, taking an easy and enjoyable path, but they do not realize the impending doom. It kind of reminds you of lemmings over the cliff, right? 
The picture of the other gate is very different, very different. First, it is described as narrow, which means that it is hard to find. It's not easily seen and easy to miss. The idea here is that there is a wall with a very large welcoming gate, but along the wall is another thin passageway that would be very easy to miss if you weren't looking for it. So it's narrow. Secondly, it is a hard way, which means that it is a path that is filled with challenges, uh, difficulties, and requires intentional steps. So it's a hard way. A third description of this is that this way leads to life, eternal life. And the fourth, those who, the fourth description of this gate is those who find it are few. In other words, the vast majority of people, those who aren't looking and careless, will miss the correct gate. So what is Jesus saying here? Jesus commands that we enter by the narrow gate. The tense of the language here indicates a decisive choice. He's not just telling us that there are two gates and two paths. <laughs> there you go. The two gates, two paths, nothing more. But he is warning us about two paths and telling us and really commanding us to choose the narrow one. The narrow gate is Jesus alone. In other words, any other way does not lead to life. It only leads to destruction. So he's calling, he is calling here for a definitive and decisive decision as to whose path you're going to be on. A decision to follow him and him alone leads to life. A decision to follow the crowd and an easy path leads to hell. The narrow gate means that Jesus is the only way to the Father. John 14, verse 6 speaks of. There are not multiple ways to get to God. Multiple, there aren't multiple ways to be a Christian or to be forgiven. There's only one way, trusting in Jesus Christ alone. This means that you understand who you are as a sinner and who He is as Lord. To enter the narrow gate means that God has given you the gift of repentance and the ruling of your life has been turned over to Christ. To enter by the narrow gate means that you really understand who Jesus is and its effects on your life. His call is to believe on Him and follow Him. The gate and the path are linked together. There are many people today who know about Jesus. They know the facts about Him. They may even have prayed to him, even asked him to bear their to, to, to be bear the burdens and maybe even be their savior. But a prayer alone doesn't produce new life. Entering the narrow gate means trusting fully in Christ, such that the trajectory of your life is forever changed. Totally changed. In other words, you cannot live like you like you on, on, on the broad path while claiming to believe in the narrow path. You can't do both paths at the same time. It doesn't work. The issue is which path are you really on? What are you really trusting in? My fear is that there are millions of people in churches all over our country who know facts about Jesus, but they do not really know Jesus. They know about the narrow way. 
They think that knowing about it and believing in it equals entering through it, but it doesn't. So what path are you on? Then the second warning that Jesus gives is in the form of fruit. And this warning asks, who are you really? Who are you really? This second warning relates to the issue of fruit, the evidence of faith, or who we are. It is the one thing to claim to, be, to believe in Jesus. It is another thing to give evidence that your faith is genuine. And again, Jesus is pressing against words uh, and statements that sound good but cannot be backed up. The, the first fruit warning comes by way of a statement about false prophets, as we read there. Jesus warns that, they, uh, that there are people who look like sheep, but they are really wolves. In other words, their message and content sounds like it is right, but it isn't. They are ravenous wolves. However, false prophets are not his point in this portion of Scripture. Fruit is. Jesus says, you will recognize them by their fruits. So the way that you distinguish a, a true prophet from a false prophet is not by what the prophet says, but by how the prophet lives. Words alone are not sufficient. Actions must follow. And to make the point even stronger, Jesus uses an illustration from nature. He wants us to see that the production of fruit is both natural and normal. It makes no sense to find grapes on thorn bushes or figs on thistle plants. Good trees produce good fruit. Unhealthy trees produce bad fruit. And it is impossible for it to be any other way. And furthermore, a tree that does not bear fruit is no longer useful. And so it is cut down and destroyed. The implication of judgment here should be pretty obvious from that illustration. The point of this is stated one more time in verse 19, just to be sure that it is clear. He says, thus you will recognize them by their fruits. By using false prophets and fruit, Jesus aims to show us that the test of whether or not something is real is by what kind of fruit it bears. Words and talk are cheap, right? Anyone can claim to believe anything. And a changed life or spiritual fruit is the only real evidence that you really, uh, that tell you really who you claim to be, who you are, who you claim to be come together when the real evidence of that spiritual fruit happens. Words and religious activity are not enough. Jesus is looking for the life-changing fruit that springs from a personal relationship with him. There needs to be some, something produced in that relationship. Jesus, though, is not done with this issue. He presses it even further toward those who would think that their religious activity is their fruit. I'm doing all these things for the church, and that's, that's fruitful, isn't it? Jesus imagines someone saying, well, I'm okay. I, I know that you are Lord. I've even called you that. I've spoken boldly in your name, cast out demons in your name, and even done mighty works in your name. And the point is a repetition of in your name. 
This person has seen God do some wonderful things, and he or she knows that the name of Jesus is powerful. The problem here is not inactivity or passivity. The problem is that this person is incredibly busy doing all sorts of things in the name of Jesus, and the spiritual success that they see leads them to believe that they know Jesus. So they assume that because they are near spiritual things, or they do spiritual things and see spiritual things, that they are spiritual. And Jesus says, <laughs> not so fast. Jesus says that the criteria found in verse 21 is doing the will of my Father and knowing Jesus personally. Those who get this wrong are told, as in verse 22, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Think about that statement, because it is stunning. Jesus is suggesting that there are some people who do all kinds of ministry while not knowing him. And the result is that he calls them workers of lawlessness. In other words, ministry, even effective ministry, without knowing Jesus is lawlessness to him. It is lawlessness to him because anything devoid of personal relationship with Christ is repulsive and damnable, even if God used it to save someone else. So who are you, really? That is the question that Jesus is asking us here in this warning. Take your words, your religious activity, just set those aside. The bigger, more important question is, do you really know Jesus, and is there really good fruit? You cannot be a fig-bearing tree trying to convince people that you are an apple tree. Although yesterday, in our driveway below our apple tree, I saw, I found a red pepper. I was very confused. Until I realized that Becky came in with a bag of uh, peppers and stuff like that. <laughs> One fell out. Very good. <laughs> this all was going to go bad <laughs> real fast here with this illustration. No matter how much you know about apples or how much you want to be an apple tree, if you bear figs, you're a fig tree. And you cannot use spiritual activity to hide anymore. Just because you have the right credentials, just because you do the right things, just because you don't do the wrong things, doesn't mean you are real. Just because you've helped people change or, or see spiritual miracles done through your ministry, doesn't mean that you know Jesus. The warning here should be very clear, but let me, let me restate it so that no one misses it. True spiritual identity is determined not by what one says, but by who you really are. True spiritual identity is determined not by the spiritual things you've done, but by the Savior who you know. The gate test relates to what path you are on, who, who are you trusting. The fruit test relates to what is coming out of your life. Do you really know Jesus? And there's one more. This warning is the form of, uh, of, of foundation 
and asks, what are you going to do? What are you going to do? The final warning is all about action or what are you going to do with what you have heard? Jesus knows that the multitude that was listening to him will not all take his words and act on them. Once again, they will file them away as good words or something that they should consider. But it will always be later. Jesus is not interested in hearing alone. He wants action going on. Verse 24 says, Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them. Jesus' final comparison is well known to anyone who grew up in Sunday school and sang the children's song, right? Wise man builds his house upon the rock. Foolish man builds his house upon the sand. The, the analogy is, is loaded with meaning. The wise man, he's mentioned first. The person who hears the words of Jesus and does them is like a wise man who builds his house upon a rock. In other words, he built his home upon a firm foundation and a strong bedrock. He did not take shortcuts. He took his time, made sure that his home was built right. And the result was stability, it was safety, and survival when a storm came. The, rains, the, the rain falls, the floods come, the winds blow, and the beating of the weather pummels this house, but it stands. Then you look at the foolish man. A foolish man is not so fortunate. He builds his house upon the sand. He does not dig down deep to find a sure foundation. He takes the easy but dangerous way. His house encounters the same storm, full of rain, full of floods, winds, and the combined pummeling. But the outcome of his house is entirely different. As verse 27 says, it fell and great was the fall of it. Both houses experienced the same storm. Only one was able to withstand it. Both houses probably looked well-built from the outside, but only one had the longevity to pass the test. Jesus uses this analogy to press home the clear choice that everyone must make. What will you do with the words of Jesus? What will you do with the words of Jesus? Of Jesus. What will you do now that you have heard these words from him? You are ignorant no more. You have no excuse. You can no, no longer claim that you didn't know. The issue now is not information. The issue now is all about obedience. The storm must mean the coming judgment of God. And Jesus is saying here that a person who merely knows what Jesus says and doesn't act on it He's in grave danger. It's danger of passing the, the future test of God's judgment. To know that Jesus is Lord, to know that he calls us to repentance, to know that he calls us to evaluate who we really are, regardless of what we've done for him, it's a sober call. Jesus is warning us that knowledge alone will result in disaster. You can come to church every Sunday Go to Sunday school, hear about the Bible, come to, to service, hear preaching of God's word, go home and go, that was nice, and not do anything about it through the rest of the days. 
And Jesus is warning us of that. Knowledge alone is going to result in disaster. I mentioned it before. It's got to make the, 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 the one foot travel. It's the foot that kills, basically, from the heart to the head. If it just stays in the head and you have knowledge of all this and great, wonderful, you can memorize the Bible and all that, wonderful. But if it doesn't get to the heart and speak to your heart, you don't do something about it, then that's that foot that kills. Jesus warns us against the knowledge alone. Again, it will result in disaster. True knowledge of him will result in matching actions or, or, or the knowledge isn't real. You have to do something about what you know. So we all must ask ourselves, am I really real? Am I ready to get real if I'm not? Am I ready for more? We've talked a lot about how God can bring you those divine appointments these last few Sundays and talking about that this summer. Bring you to that point where God is going to use you for his glory. But are you ready for more? Because God can use anyone. <laughs> if he can use a donkey to speak, he can use anyone. I don't know if that donkey put his trust in Jesus Christ for eternal life. But we need to do more as far as receive him as Savior and live that life. Do something about what you've heard. Now, the response of the crowd in verses 28 and 29 is pretty striking. His words were different than anything that they had heard before. There was something unique here that created astonishment. Verse 28 says, And when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching. The word for astonished means to be uh, beside oneself, to be shocked, to be overwhelmed, and a bit scared. It is used for moments when people were healed, and it refers to the realization that there is something going on here bigger than me. The people were encountering some supernatural truth. Verse 29 says, For he was teaching them as one who had authority, and not as their scribes. Here's what they, they came to see. This message that I'm hearing is God speaking to me. They felt it. That's what they felt. They, they saw it. They knew it. That God was speaking to them. And that is what I hope and pray you will sense today. And not just today, but the days ahead as well. That God is speaking directly to you. God is speaking directly to me. I'm praying that you will no longer be passive. That you will no longer sit on the fence. Or think that you can put this issue off further. The storms of God's judgment are always approaching. And only those who know Jesus, truly know him, are safe. I'm going to ask the worship team to come on up. I'm going to lead you in a couple songs. One, of course, to kind of get us in the thought of, of what we've heard and to respond in that. And if you'd like to respond to what you've heard as, as the Holy Spirit speaking to your heart. I encourage you to come on up to the altar. You can pray and uh, spend some time with Him. But let me ask you these questions as the worship team comes up. What path are you on? 
Have you put your trust in Jesus Christ alone for the forgiveness of your sins? Are you trusting in nothing but him for the redemption of your soul? What path are you on? Another question, who are you really? Who are you really? What does your fruit say? Has your life been changed by Jesus? And not saying perfect, but transforming, changing, becoming holy. You're different. Or you should be. Are you, diff- are you a different person today? Is there any evidence that you are really a follower of Jesus? Who are you really? And a final question, what are you going to do? Jesus' words must be heard, but, they, but that cannot be all. you got to hear them, definitely. But that's not the only thing that you should be doing. They must be obeyed, or you've not really heard them. You feel like God is speaking to you now? Do you know what he is asking you to do today? Because each time we come together like this, and I come before you and bring God's message, I'm preaching so that there can be a change in your life, a decision that could be made by you for God. That's why I always offer the altar for you, because you can come up and pray. Because there needs to be a response to what you've heard. Do you know what he is asking you to do today? Do you sense his wonderful drawing to himself? Are you ready for more? Because there's so much more that God wants to do in you and through you. Are you ready to get real? I guess the real question is will you? (laughs) Will you do something? You've got to choose. And I pray that you choose wisely. The altar is open if you want to come pray. And just trust that you will obey what God is prompting you in your life.